It's time for a conversation about a book that matters. This is The Book Nook. A Christmas Carol in prose being A Ghost Story of Christmas by Charles Dickens. Preface. I've endeavored in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other, with the season, or with me. May it haunt their houses pleasantly, and no one wish to lay it. Their faithful friend and servant, Charles Dickens. December 1843. Stave 1, Marley's Ghost, an excerpt. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out a generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, and made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head and on his eyebrows and in his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days and did it thought one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather could chill him. No wind that blew was bitterer than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose. No pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what was a clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him, and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, No eye at all is better than an evil eye, Dark Master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked. And so begins A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Well done, Kyle. I honestly would have preferred that in a British accent, but, you know, well. <laughs> For the si- Maybe next time. In honor yeah. of Charles Dickens, I will not butcher his tongue. <laughs> yeah, there. Okay. Hey, Van, do us a favor here. Um, don't, not in a British accent, but give, <laughs> us, give us the plot summary of the book. How would you summarize the plot of A Christmas Carol? Well, I would um, say in Scrooge, we have a man that was so set in his ways that he uh, only saw life through a a particular lens, and it was cold and dreary. Um, Seems to have no emotion. And uh, so the plot is to bring him back um, 
to his senses to have an eye-opening experience that helps him see that there um, is a different and a better way to view life, to understand life. And if you're not careful, you can miss out on it, and the consequences are steep. Hmm. Someone once said, every great story ever told somehow, some way, is about redemption. Hmm. And and that is, in a very real way, what I love about this story. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, without w- without going way too deep too soon into meaning and metaphor, what was your initial reaction to the book, to Dickens? I mean, it's been over, you know, nearly 200 years. It's been nearly 200 years since he's written this. So what's your, what was your initial reaction? I was absolutely delighted by the way that Dickens captures human dialogue. Yeah, yeah, and, it's and awesome. Not simply in the wit of what people say, but Ben and I actually talked about this a little bit already, the things he allows people not to say. And so the audience is so clearly invited into the emotions of the character when someone stops and doesn't say the thing we're expecting them to say. Um it's really pretty remarkable. I thought the narrator was hilarious. He would get off on these <laughs> rabbit trails and sort of obsess about weird little details and then say, oh, wait, we got to get back to the story. And he was just sort of upfront about what was going through his mind. The narrator was. And it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was, I laughed out loud at parts, you know, and, and choked up at parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that good. Mm-hmm. I think some of this terminology is foreign to our <laughs> vocabulary yeah. today. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. No children stopped to ask him what it was a clock. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I know what he means, but I would never put it that way. Never <laughs> put it that way. That's and, a funny thing. And it is definitely one of those books where, to Keith's point, it swings in emotion rapidly. It's only like 150 pages. But you go from scenes where you're just laughing at the narrator's discussion about which is more dead, a doornail or a coffin nail. And then you switch to a scene with the Cratchit family around Christmas and you just start weeping mm-hmm. because it's, it's either too sad or too beautiful mm-hmm. or you don't know which it is. Um, but it's very powerful. Several years ago, I started reading this book every year at Christmas. I, I, found, I find time to read it around November and December. It's not a long book for you listeners if you're, if you're getting into reading classics. This is a great work of classic literature to start with because it's so accessible. It's very short. It's only... My, my copy of it's just over 100 pages. Um, but it is rich. It is rich. And every time I read it, every time I come back to it, I'm, it's like all at once coming home to an old friend, but also uh, being struck by the newness of it all over again. I mean, it's, it's just such a spectacular little book. The characters in this book are awesome. I mean, even the description you just read, Kyle, of Scrooge, you know exactly who that guy is, you know? Um, yeah, it's a it's an awesome little book. So the other thing that really struck me, aside from just the literary quality, was a whole range of cultural um, reality in the in that time and place that kind of comes out in a variety of ways. That if you compare it to our time, you start to you start to realize a little bit about what it, what what the word Christendom meant. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a time and place, when the nephew comes up to him, he he greets him and he says, "A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you." And I just thought that's an interesting thing. Do we walk up to people? We don't. I mean, this is just not a thing anymore in Western culture that people say. But this is what he said, and this notion that 
the central concern of our lives is whether God has saved us is not like the thing we discussed. It's so central that it would be tagged on to our salutations. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. bumping into somebody on the road, you know, God save you. Or, you know? Yeah. After reading this, I have gone up to people and started saying thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's yeah. hilarious. So, How's that going over, man? <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, okay. People just people just love it when I do that. <laughs> they and they eat is, that up. And it's definitely the description of a different time. I mean, you yeah. get a rich picture of the the food they were eating, the clothes they were yeah. wearing, the the sootiness of the town with the chimneys and the way the snow would be on the ground and how people lived out their days. I mean, it's a it's an amazing just historical snapshot of another time, another place. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's it's. You do feel he's so good. Dickens is so good at at um, setting, not just at characters, but at setting. And so, you when you read his descriptions of the setting, it's like you're there. You can smell the food. You can see the fog. You know, it's just awesome. Um, it's just such a great little book. So we've we've done a plot summary, but what what would you guys say? And I think we already have one contender, but what would you say this book is about? Mm. We have, from Keith, we have, it's about redemption, and you, you can't read this and not walk away saying it's at some level, I mean, at maybe the highest level, it is about the redemption of Ebenezer Scrooge. What, what, what would you say it's about? How would you talk about that? I would cheat somewhat. I'm, I'm stealing an idea from uh, G.K. Chesterton, who actually writes the introduction to my version of the book, and because... Uh, the more I read it, the more I thought his his point was pretty valid. I think this is a defense of Christmas. I think this is a this is the reason why people should celebrate Christmas. I think especially people who don't feel like celebrating Christmas, <laughs> um, because that's Scrooge's character at the beginning is someone who thinks it's a lo- it's it's a wadahui. Nobody should be taking care of this. It doesn't make economical sense. It doesn't do anybody any good. Uh, why all the fuss? And so I think this book is. Dickens' answer to that question, why Christmas? I would say um, this probably falls in line with the redemption theme, but um, grace. And the reason I say that is because uh, apart from the visitation of the spirits of past, present, and future, he'll remain the man that he is in this opening that we read about. Um, Apart from having his eyes open, there's no change that comes. And so... I see it as as a a gracious act that comes upon Scrooge that he gets a chance to uh, respond to what he didn't realize was actually true about him before in his in his relationships in his life. Mm. You know, Kyle, I've I've thought about what you said um, and what G.K. Chesterton said. I think it's clever. Like everything G.K. says is super clever. I think in some ways. Um, it has to be an apologetic for Christmas. Uh, I think I think at least it has to serve as one. I don't know if that's what it's about, but I think it has to serve as an apologetic for Christmas. Yeah. When I when I um think about Scrooge's character and the way that uh, I'm I'm going to just say Jesus, and we can go there later. But in the way that Jesus sort of calls him out of himself, um, using the past, the present, and the future. It's an interesting thing. It's an interesting plot structure to, to have these spirits of time 
call Scrooge out of himself. This is a man who had closed himself off from even memory. Carried his low temperature around with him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, but but willfully closed himself off. And so, like, if you even in the scene with the ghost of Christmas Past. Here, the ghost of Christmas past is a candle. It's a flame. It's it's a light that dances and changes shapes. And so the picture you get is this sort of dancing flame that's always changing shape. And what does Scrooge want to do at the end when he's had enough? He wants to put the cap back on the flame you and want- snuff it out. He does not want to see by the light of memory, to see by the light of the past. He has literally closed himself off. And so I, in some ways, I think. It's about Scrooge's character, at least, is is the kind of guy. It's what happens to someone who worships an idol. Hmm. Um, they become closed off to reality, closed off to the beauty and truth and goodness of the world around them, and obsessed with that one isolated thing. They, to to use another G.K. Chesterton idea, they file all of reality down to one sharp point. Well, for him, is, it's money. This is what Marley said to him in. When Marley comes to him, and at the very beginning, Marley, they were having a discussion about what life was about, and Marley says, mankind was my business, the common welfare was my business, charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of to your point, Ben, that he had narrowed everything down to the acquisition and production of money and work in his business, and he'd forgotten, he'd become, you know, sort of isolated mm-hmm. in his point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and to your point about him becoming this shriveled, hollow version of himself, uh, you see it in the story, and all the characters remark about it. It's not even as though he's extravagant. It's not even as though Scrooge is obsessed with the pleasures of money or the power of money or even the the things wealth can buy someone. I mean, he sits by himself in an empty house eating gruel from a pot mm-hmm. with no nothing to do, no one to talk to. He doesn't enjoy any of it. Mm-hmm. But there's something about him that demands I have to acquire and maintain every last penny. Yeah. And and you don't I don't I don't think I really got an answer to why in the story. I don't know if he is clear in why that happens. Just that that's his reality. Right. Security, maybe. I mean, like, um, he fears, you know, is it, was it his girlfriend in the Ghost of Christmas Past scene where, doesn't she say something like, you fear the world too much or something like that? Um, I can't remember. That dialogue is, is priceless. It really gives you, it kind of shines a light on his, um, on the transformation that took place in his life from a joyful young guy to um, kind of a penny-pinching miser. And uh, so, but all, all that to say, the the characters that Scrooge or that G, um, Charles Dickens surrounds Scrooge with serve to sort of highlight both Scrooge's character and the alternative to Scrooge's character. One of my favorite characters in the book, I'd love to hear your take on this as well, uh, some of your favorite characters, but one of my favorites is uh, Fred, Scrooge's nephew. Um, he's really the, the first person in the book we see challenge Scrooge. At the very beginning. And here you've got this cold, miserly, you know, frost always with him kind of guy. And then you get Fred over here who comes in and his cheeks are ruddy from the, um, you know, the blood that boils inside him. You know, he's just a a different character. 
Yeah. I would actually say uh, his his it almost seems betrothed. We're not really clear who's Scrooge's girlfriend or person he's intent to marry in this scene is, but it's during the Ghost of Christmas Past. She's actually one of my favorite characters because mm. she just comes out and says all the things that we've been wanting to say to Scrooge. Mm. And she understands him so well. So the, 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 the lines you're speaking of, she says, you fear the world too much. And she actually accuses him of having an idol that has displaced her. Mm-hmm. And when she asks, and when he asks, what, what, what idol are you talking about? He, she says, a golden one. Mm. And it's this fierce rebuke of what he's become and a reminder to the audience and to him that he didn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. He had no excuse. She was telling him right then and there at the early stages of his life, Scrooge, I love you. I want to be here for you. But if you don't let this go, you will let me go. I don't know. She, she to me, that was a hard scene. But she was a character I wasn't expecting. And so that was, that was cool. Yeah, he, he trades her, this flesh and blood grace and beauty for, for gold. Um, and, and he makes the excuse that this is just the way the world is. That I don't, I, I'm, I'm a victim of the way the world is. And I have to do this. Um, and she basically says, well, if that's the way you feel, then I'll let you free of our contract. He treats their relationship the way he's treating it, like it's a business contract, like everything else. And that's, that's brutal. <laughs> that's, a, that's a woman who knows her business. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd say Fred's my favorite too, just because, you know, the way you, you come to understand Scrooge from the description given in the book, and he pops into the store, Fred does, you know, just with this optimism that cannot be uh, squelched. It's like, no matter how uh, many times Scrooge wants to say humbug, you know, it's like Fred is like, that's okay, it's Christmas, you know. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of, I'll show you. And, yeah. uh, you just can't, I love it, you can't kill his optimism. Yeah, everybody yeah. in town is afraid of Scrooge except Fred. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, reality. Yeah. 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 They either fear him or hate him, but Fred does neither, mm-hmm. you know. And, and the other thing is um, Cratchit. Yeah, Cratchit is is afraid of him, but he doesn't hate him. Right, which mm. is odd. Bob Cratchit doesn't hate Scrooge. Well, he even toasts him at Christmas, much to his wife's chagrin. You know, right. she's not having it. Um, but yeah, so I I think I like Fred the most of all the characters, but I think I admire Bob Cratchit the most. Mm. Mm. Um, here's a a father in difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm who is making a Christmas for his family and devoted to his family and cultivated a, an island in a sea of misery of beauty and love and warmth mm-hmm. and uh, care and concern. And, and even opportunity. Yeah. He's creating, he's working to create opportunity for what, his oldest son. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a sweet, sweet scene. Yeah. And I got to say, of all the characters in literature who get probably as few lines as I can think of, Tiny Tim packs a wallop for the yeah. amount of times he actually speaks or does anything in the story, which is actually remarkably small. He, he stands as a giant in that story and really ends up being a giant in the imagination of Christmas. I mean, what a wonderful character that I think, Dickens has created there. And I could be wrong about this. This is just going off memory, but I think that we only get one line direct from Tiny Tim. The other line we get from him, we have quoted by his father. And it's a pivotal line. I think that's the linchpin line in the whole story, actually. But the line that Tiny Tim does say is, God bless us, everyone. 
I think that's the one thing we hear Tiny Tim actually say out loud. The other thing that we have quoted by him is this. I'm going to read just a, a brief section from um, from the book here. Uh, Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim have been off to church. And so Mrs. Cratchit asks, and how did little Tim behave? Asked Mrs. Cratchit when she had rallied Bob on his credulity and Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content. As good as gold, said Bob, and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and hardy. He's not growing strong and hardy. Um, and Bob knows it, which is why his voice is even more tremulous. But the quote that he has of Tiny Tim thinking thoughtfully in church that he hopes people were glad to see a cripple at church <laughs> because it might remind them of the one who did two things. Okay, Kyle, you and I talked about this yesterday. Ch- Charles Dickens cherry-picks two miracles of Jesus, made lame beggars walk and blind men see. And those are the two miracles that we get in the story. And so Tiny Tim nails it. I mean, right. <laughs> Tiny Tim, he, he gets it. You know, um, there's a miracle that's going to happen in the story, and one of them will be a blind man will, will suddenly see. That's why, I think, that's why I think the ghosts are so peculiar. So l- let me ask you guys this question. I don't, really, I don't have an answer to this, I, I, but I'm curious what you think. Why time? Why ghost of past, ghost of present, and ghost of Christmas future? Why not ghost of memory, ghost of heartache, ghost of remorse, ghost mm. of despair? You know, why did he go time? What is it about time, you think, that Dickens saw as instrumental for Scrooge's redemption? I mean, my, just my instant thought is the way Christ dealt with our sin, past, present, and future, you know, and the way we see ourselves. Um. Well, that, that's interesting because all these ghosts, it is implied in the book and inferred by the reader, are derived from God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so God is God of past, present, and future. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's an interesting observation. So it says something about who sent them. I would say part of this has to come down to the nature of stories and the nature of people. So stories, plot, all of these things must inhabit time. Um, Scrooge did not become Scrooge in a day. He became Scrooge over a lifetime. And so I think in order to unravel that knot, Dickens needed to take him on a journey of time in a short amount of time, if that makes sense. He had to, he had to unravel a lifetime of misery and misery in a single evening or what he eventually reveals is a single evening which is a fun little I, I and so i think for for dickens at a at a basic level the plot had to see what had happened to scrooge and how we could fix it in the future if the consequences can be averted i think the second thing is human beings only experience redemption through time so we have to think of christ's redemption of us as happening before us and we have to know of Christ's return is coming after us. We always experience redemption within time. And we know that the next moment 
we live is a new opportunity for redemption. And I think that's a, I think that's a theme that Dickens is setting up with the ghosts is that there's a ghost of Christmas past, a ghost of Christmas present, and a ghost of Christmas future. What we don't have is what is the Christmas going to look like tomorrow when the bell chimes again and he has another opportunity in time to do something about it. That's my intuition. I think, yeah, maybe I'd sum it up better what I said by saying that the whole of a, of a man's life is taken into account. Mm. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that God sees the whole of a man's life yeah. um, and even points him thoughtfully toward his future. You know, there's, there's that aspect of it as well. I think um, maybe there's clues to, to this in um, the way that the different spirits are described, mm-hmm. and, and both visually and um, the experience of them. I mean, I like the, in particular, the the spirit of Christmas past, the the history, uh, if you're looking backward in time, like you said, this thing has a bright light on its head, but it's also described as, um, i got to find, oh, uh, here's what it says about the spirit of Christmas past. The voice was soft and gentle, singularly low, as if instead of being so close beside him, it were at a distance. And isn't that like history? Mm-hmm. It has this light to bring, but um, it it we struggle to hear it, right? That the past is a is is a, so influential. It can have so much wisdom to bring into our life, but we we struggle to hear it because it it speaks softly to us, mm-hmm. even though it's got a bright light on its head. Mm-hmm. And there's this interesting exchange between Scrooge and the ghost of the past. Where he's he's afraid he's going to fall, and he he wants to be borne up, and the spirit says this: "Bear but a touch of my hand." There said the spirit, laying it upon his heart, and you shall be upheld in more than this. I love I love that line. Um, it's a great line indicating what the spirit is there to do. It's to it's to use the past to illuminate his understanding. But here's the line that came right before that. Scrooge says, I am immortal and liable to fall. Yeah. So fall in what way? Oof. I am immortal and liable to fall. And then the spirit says, bear but a touch of my hand there, laying it upon his heart, and you shall be upheld in more than this. So there's something about memory and and the past that that can keep us from the fall. Well, then we then we see this happen, right? It yeah. begins to happen for him <clears throat> as he remembers much that he has lost by being becoming devoted to an idol. Mm-hmm. At each of the different ghosts, we get a different Scrooge. So over the course of each of those staves, where one ghost comes and the next ghost comes, there's a different interaction he has. So the first ghost, the ghost of Christmas past, is the one that gets the most pushback from Scrooge. He's angry. He's frustrated. He's afraid. Tries to force the cat to, back on his head. He wants yeah. to turn away. He asks to leave several different scenes. And the ghost is very kind, very diligent. He's not going to let him get off the hook, but he forces him to face his past so that by the time he gets to the ghost of Christmas present, Scrooge goes, okay, I know I can't get out of this. I know that I can't avoid what's being shown to me, so I'll go with you willingly. Here, that transformation of the past upon us, I think, is a huge point for Dickens. Well, here's here's the other interesting thing that just occurred to me. Um, th- at the very end of the book, 
it says about Scrooge um, that, um, let me find the quote, I wrote it down. It was always said of them that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man live possessed the knowledge. But if you look at the ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, who was who played that role in the past? It was Fezziwig. Mm-hmm. And Scrooge himself gives testimony. Nobody could have impacted our lives more than this man, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for good or ill. I love Fezziwig. And in the in the present, in the present, it's Fred who plays that role and shows what an infectious, jolly, joyful mm. impact he has. But in the future, it turns out to be Scrooge. And this is this is mm. why I think it's mm. so pivotal. We understand. Um, we we call him Scrooge, but he has a first name, mm. and his first name is Ebenezer. Right, and that's ripped right out of the pages of Scripture, where the Israelites are delivered by the Lord, and they they set up a monument to the Lord's deliverance, and it's a it's a stone monument that they call the Ebenezer Stone. The Lord is my help. Stone. There is an Ebenezer Stone in the story, and it it turns out to be uh, Scrooge's gravestone. Mm-hmm. The Ooh. gravestone has Ebenezer written on it. That is the Lord's deliverance for everyone in the world. And everyone in this community, it would have been Scrooge's death right. would have been the Ebenezer in their life. Except his redemption meant that he got to live into and become his name. Yeah. He, he gets to actually go there. But we're, we're jumping way too far ahead here. Um, <laughs> you told us not to. I know it. I know it. I know it. I had to do it. Okay. So... <laughs> So here's what I, I'd like to talk about the past a little bit more, and, and here's an insight I think I think worth making. There was nothing about the past that was informing Scrooge's behavior in the present. Yes. So there's yes. that that's that's pivotal to understand. He had he was acting in the present in a way that took nothing into account from his past. None of his relationships, none of his own experiences, none of his own suffering, none of his joys. I would say we don't get a, a sufficient cause, but we do get. Some things that I would say maybe point to what's going on there. The most pivotal perhaps being the scene where he's by himself in the boarding school, all by himself reading a book. To me, there's something in that in the sense that – or in the scene before where things are very dilapidated and shriveled up. I think those early memories of a poor Scrooge to me are the only indication Mm -hmm. we get that he's running away from something he doesn't want to go back to. Yeah, and and what's fascinating, Kyle – um, when you said that, um, so I could be reading those wrong, but that's the way I. So here's here's that here's that moment, kind of when we meet him first. It says the school is not quite deserted. Said the ghost, a solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. Scrooge said he knew it, and he sobbed. Hmm. He weeps over his own lonely self, and there's something about. Even just remembering his lonely self then, that yeah. that just pierced him in that moment. Um, and I think, Kyle, you're right, that there's something about that opening scene of Scrooge being alone and in that dilapidated schoolhouse by himself that, that still shaped his heart to this day. Yeah, because I would say uh, where we find him in the present is his his mindset is it's better to be alone than to make myself vulnerable to that hurt again. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah. And perhaps maybe he learned the wrong lesson from that the first time, which was he was more afraid of the dilapidated dilapidated house than he was of the loneliness. Mm. And so w- one of those fears took over, and this chance to look at it again is sort of waking him up to, oh, what I really feared was being alone, yeah. <laughs> which hasn't changed. Okay, so 
What is the lesson that Scrooge learned from the ghost of Christmas past? Summarize it in one sentence. No complex sentences, if you please. <laughs> I'm trying to decide if what I've just concocted is a complex sentence. Your greatest joys came from generosity, not accumulation. Hmm. That's pretty good, Kyle. Mm -hmm. But not good enough. Not Someone good else. Enough. No, not I'm just good kidding. enough. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> else. <laughs> no, no, that's actually. Thank you for playing. Yeah. Uh, I would say. I just had to get in before Keith dropped yeah, a bomb on yeah, us. I had to. Yeah. That's, no, that was really good, actually. I'd say his greatest joy came from people being nice and not hoarding a bunch of stuff together. This <laughs> <laughs> is way. Now way we're getting someplace. Okay, well, now we're talking. Yeah. I, I that's kind of what Kyle meant to say, I think. Yeah. yeah. What Kyle was trying to say, guys, yeah. was. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's tough. I mean, because I, I, I want to say it's just there's a, a joy in the innocence of youth, but yet there was a little bit of hurt there because of the school scene, you know, where he was alone and neglected by friends. But because you see in the Ghosts of Christmas Past, there was he smiles a lot and gets really excited when he sees certain people that uh, he's being reminded of and mm -hmm. said, I could tell you that story. I know exactly what happened, you know. So... A lot of joy seemed to come back to him. Yeah, I think that's a great point. He he rediscovers joy mm -hmm. when he revisits the past in some sense. He rediscovers joy um, in his little sister. She's this, she's a poignant little bright spot of joy. You know, Fezziwig is a poignant bright spot of mm -hmm. joy. In fact, we find out it's his sister, his little sister who loved him so much and then dies but leaves a nephew, which is Fred, who we meet in the story. The only and, and person. he's closed who, him off, you know? The only person who still hasn't given up on Scrooge yeah. is the son of the one girl who doesn't give up who on Scrooge. Who never gave up on Scrooge. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's spectacular. So he rediscovers joy, he, and he learns that maybe, maybe to summarize those two points, the secret to joy is in generosity um, and hospitality, not accumulation. Um, I think he begins to learn through the through the spirit of Christmas past the truth of what Marley told him when Marley appeared to him that your business is way more than your trade. Yeah, there's a he that's starts right. to learn that. Yeah, there's a right. there's a moment. So first of all, I I got the distinct impression from Charles's description of Marley that that was a dude currently living in hell. As he walked upon the earth, he had in front an of atmosphere of his own. He, lived he was, in, you know, and he was, and he. It looked like the wind, as if a hot wind, a hot vapor, was pushing back his hair, and he was just sort of this, this hot burning. Anyways, it, that was a horrifying image. Yeah. But the he gets this glimpse right as Marley's ghost is leaving, before the ghost of Christmas past comes, and it's to Keith's point, where he gets to see into the spiritual realm of things, mm. and he sees all the other men who are bound up in the chains of their wealth. And there's this little moment right before the end of the chapter where he says he sees a man with a safe, like filled with money, we suppose, or tied around his ankle. But the thing he's weeping over is a woman and her child who are destitute on the side of the road, and he can't help them anymore. It, it says, beyond the, point the, of the, the quote, I highlighted this exact thing, Kyle, when I read it. Uh, it, he, it says, the misery with them all was, as he's looking at all these spirits, clearly that they had that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. Mm. 
It reminds me mm-hmm. of the story Jesus tells of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man is begging, please yeah. just send somebody to my brothers, you know, yeah. to tell them. And, and and Scrooge is very much that guy who accumulates in barns. Yeah. Yes. You know, and then his that night, his very soul is demanded of him. Yeah. You know, very much. Yeah. His soul is weighed and is found wanting in, in many respects. So, so the ghost of Christmas past and the lesson that he learned from him and from Marley was not enough. It was, it's next for the ghost of Christmas present to show up and force Scrooge to look around at the world about him. Um, to, to see people, to open his eyes and see people. This is where we start to see the miracle of Jesus opening his eyes, I think, of the, of the blind man. Um, what is it that Scrooge sees? What stood out to you in that in that chapter on the second ghost, the ghost of Christmas present? Sort of the way that he was making everyone miserable, but the way that each of those groups of people still wished him well. So you saw the Cratchits with uh, Bob Cratchit actually toasting Scrooge's health, despite everybody else making it very clear that they were terrified and angry at Scrooge for the way they made their their dad's life miserable. Or Fred, as we've mentioned before, uh, talking about how much he still loved his uncle, even though everyone else in the party made it very clear that they were really happy he didn't show up to their party. Yeah. Um, I think that contrast really, I think, opened up his eyes. Yeah, I think for me it's the, the Fred – uh, portions of that of that um, Christmas present, uh, you know, when they're they're all trying to <laughs> dump on Scrooge. I mean, there's something about Fred where he just holds out hope for uh, somebody that he really cares about and loves. He never gives up on Scrooge. He's um, he says, "I love him. Mm-hmm. You know, I care about him, mm-hmm. and um, I'm not going to say anything bad about him." Man, what a lesson to learn. He sees something more valuable um, in in the hope of what what could be, and I just if only we had eyes to think that or see that way all the time and yeah. view people. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of eyes, Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before this spirit, this second ghost. He was not the dogged Scrooge he had been, so the transformation is already taking place. And though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind. He did not like to meet them. Mm. I am the ghost of Christmas present, said the spirit. Look upon me. <laughs> he tells Scrooge. <laughs> with, his, with his robe all open for yeah. his chest. So, yeah. so this yeah. is the second time Scrooge has met with a spirit he would rather not have had to look at. He didn't want to look at his past. And he doesn't want to look at his present. As if he can avert his eyes from the truth then he can he can continue in the life that he's chosen for himself, untouched, unloved, mm-hmm. um, and and that's what he wants. He doesn't want to look, but the spirit's not having it. Look upon me, he says, and I love this next description. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. So this this. Just that idea of generosity and life and virility and, and vulnerability. Vulnerability, yeah. too, yeah. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, 
and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath Mm. was eaten up with rust. I love that description. I love that description because... Here we have, I think, the, the, the residue of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Mm-hmm. The, the ghost of Christmas has a scabbard, but no sword, and the scabbard's all rusted over because God has declared peace on earth, goodwill toward men, this age of grace, this age mm-hmm. of Christ. And you see him with this, this staff, which he describes as a horn of plenty, and as he goes throughout the day... He's sort of dripping little bits of, I don't know, Christmas juice yeah. on, on different people yeah. <laughs> and uh, liquid Christmas cheer. And uh, everywhere he does so, something brightens up, whether it's someone's demeanor, whether it's uh, the food gets a little richer. There's a, just enough more for people to have. He's, he's just sort of going around making sure that everybody's quote-unquote Christmas cheer cup is full as yeah. they go around. Yeah. Well, was it the ghost of Christmas present where Cratchit's wife was – Really worried about the pudding being just right. Yes. I was, yes. I was getting on my nerves. I like, just bring out the pudding. Let them eat. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh. yeah. Stop with the pudding. Yeah. So there's a really powerful little moment there that becomes, I think, a turn in that chapter. So mm. she brings out the pudding. And you've had this description of the the entire meal. And I, I, I my mouth watered even though I didn't know what half those foods were. Yeah. Um, but she gets to the end. And one of the things they said it says is that she was really worried about the pudding. She was glad everybody liked it. But it said nobody – Nobody mentioned that for this many people, it actually seems like a bit too little pudding. Like they didn't have enough pudding. But nobody would ever mention it Mm -hmm. because they were so thankful for it. And then all the rest of the scenes that we get are increasing levels of deprivation on Christmas. You get two guys in a lighthouse with like one bottle of grog between them. You get a bunch of guys on a ship in the middle of a storm. And in each of those scenarios – Scrooge, the person who thinks money is the only thing that can make him happy, sees people with absolutely nothing celebrating Christmas with joy. Yeah. Yeah, he says, Kyle, this is the line. He says, oh, what a wonderful pudding. Bob Cratchit said, and calmly too, that he regarded it as the greatest success achieved by Mrs. Cratchit since their marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Mrs. Cratchit said that now the weight was off her mind. She would confess she had had her doubts about the quantity of flour. Everybody had something to say about it, but nobody said or thought it, w- it was at all a small pudding for a large family. It would have been flat heresy to do so. Any Cratchit would have blushed to hint at such a thing. Mm-hmm. It's such an awesome, yeah. awesome little thing. But it, it goes back to something the, the ghost tells him. Um, is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch, asked Scrooge? There is. My own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day, asked Scrooge? To any kindly given, to a poor one most. Why to a poor one most, asked Scrooge. Because it needs it most. So we, we see that lived out in the Cratchit household. Yeah, yeah I would call the, 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 the flavor of the seasoning contentment. Yeah, that's good. Mm. Yeah. It's, so when I read that, you know, about how the Cratchit family enjoyed them just being together, that's the heart of it all. I mean, gifts aside, so what? It's, this is it. It's us. Yeah. You know, and that's where your joy is. Which is interesting because in this Christmas story, they mention the presents briefly when Cratchit comes home. He's got a bunch of presents in his hands, and they all sort of 
grab the presents out of his bag almost as he's walking through the door. But then there's really no mention of presents pretty much most of the book. But any modern description of a Christmas story, the, the climactic event is present giving. Right. But in all these, it was almost entirely either eating or playing a game or telling stories. Very different description. There, there's one There's one exception to that, and it's when the guy comes in. I think it's – I can't remember even whose house. It might have been Fred's house. But it describes him this way, and I, I got a – I was tickled by this because he makes a big point about the importance of children mm. in this book. And it's yes. about children that the issue of the presents come in. And it says this, the guy, I forget who the guy was, but he comes in bearing gifts and there's a bunch of kids there. And it says, um, uh, then the shouting and the struggling and the onslaught that was made on the defenseless porter, the scaling him with chairs for ladders to dive yeah. into his pockets, despoil him of brown paper parcels, hold on tight by his cravat, <laughs> hug him around the neck, pummel his back and kick his legs. <laughs> An irrepressible affection. Um, so he draw, he paints this picture of just the joy, you know, that Christmas yeah. is to kids and, and just the general cacophony that accompanies yeah. lots of children. But in the same... Spirit. I spirit. think that, that's the same scene where he says, "You've heard it said that there are forty children acting as one, but here we have each child acting as forty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He says that, and so, but in the same spirit, he, you remember he goes to see the woman that he he rejected oh, and wouldn't that, marry. That's the scene. That's her husband. Who, uh, oh, gosh. and then and then there's um, he says this, and this is what I think he gets to the point about children. Um, it says when Scrooge thought. Looking at this beautiful daughter of this woman that he didn't marry, when Scrooge thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and as full of promise, might have called him father, and listen to this, and been a springtime in the haggard winter of his life, his sight grew very dim indeed. Yeah. So the lessons he learns from the present, how would you say it? Why does the spirit, what, what does the spirit force him to see and what has he made to learn? Well, your choices have consequences mm -hmm. and some that, you know, pretty deep. <clears throat> I think Keith gets to, to a heart of it with this description of child childlikeness because even the even the ghost of christmas present is very uh jovial and childlike and goofy and you know he likes a good party there's a description of the uh party at fred's house where they talk about after the food and after the music they play games um and he says for it is good to be children sometimes and never better at Christmas when its mighty founder was a child himself. Yeah. There's something about child childlikeness. And I think he gets to this uh, idea that we celebrate not because of what we've got, maybe, but because of who we've got, which I think is sort of brought painfully home in the fact that the only person alone on Christmas is Scrooge. Hmm. Yeah, there's a... There's a word we don't use often anymore, but it's the it's the word mirth. And I think that it's one of the things that Scrooge rediscovers 
when he's forced to look at the present that whether it's a poor house or his nephew's house or wherever he turns, Christmas brings mirth, this joy, and in particular, laughter with him. There's laughing. And in, in, in the nephew, it's he's one of the best laughers that there ever is, you know? <laughs> um, and, and according to Charles Dickens, he just laughs and laughs, and that, that has bearing on the end of the story as well and the mm-hmm. way we see Scrooge behave himself. Um, but I, yeah, I think... I think Van, you 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 hit the nail on the head when you said the word contentment. But that I think maybe contentment is a necessary ingredient of mirth. Mm. Um, mm. To really enjoy a season, you you can't do it without contentment. And mm. and mirth will go anywhere. Maybe even especially into a poorhouse. Yeah, you yeah. Know? There's there's Christian classics have talked about the spiritual disciplines for a long time, but one of the ones that surprised me is that's counted among them is celebration. That, that we as we as Christians, and I think Charles Dickens is hitting on this in the story, there's actually a discipline to celebrating. There's actually a good in it. It is not wasted effort. It's not superfluous. It is actually a necessary element to good spiritual health to give oneself to celebration in a powerful way. Yeah. You know, I yeah. think maybe another lesson in the present, I, I think Fred was the one that uh, when everybody was talking about Scrooge's money and all the stuff that he had gotten for himself that Fred says, but he doesn't even do anything with that. Mm-hmm. He lives in this dungy, you know, setup uh, of a home. And so it seems to me that what Scrooge is really chasing is the promise of something that never arrives, you know. Um, so if it's wealth, which it seems to be from the story, it's, it's just a, a never-ending um, chase. Uh, much like sin, that never delivers on what it supposedly uh, promises at the end, and so he just sits there, uh, you know, going about his business day after day, and and um, you know, um, discontent and blind hope, to the world around him. But yeah, hoping that tomorrow finally brings what he's been looking for, maybe, and um, and so what he's made aware of is all the stuff that is, he is passing up um, with every lap that he takes around the track, you know. Yeah, he's also surprised, I think. I think with the spirit of Christmas past, he's reminded of things he had forgotten that he valued. And I think in the spirit of Christmas present, he is surprised that other people who don't value what he values are nevertheless happy and uh, full of joy. Mm. Um, so he's surprised that Bob Cratchit and the mm. wretchedness of his circumstance is nevertheless a household of joy. He's surprised that his nephew, whom has not followed Scrooge's example, is nevertheless you know a household of light and and joy and generosity. Uh, the very opposite of what Scrooge had had become. Um, the uh, that this particular stave closes in a frightening way, and the story takes a dark turn here at the end of this particular ghostly visit, right before the ghost of Christmas Future shows up, and it kind of ties a bow, I think, on some of the observations we're making right now. The chimes are ringing the three quarters past eleven at that moment. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask," said Scrooge, looking intently at the spirit's robe. But I see something strange and not belonging to yourself, protruding from your skirts. Is it a foot or a claw? 
It might be a claw for the flesh there is upon it, was the Scrooge was the spirit's sorrowful reply. Look here. So the spirit is once again forcing his eyes open, mm. forcing him to see. From the foldings of its robe it brought two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung upon the outside of its garment. It's the opposite of the family that we see with the father and the mother and the clamoring. Mm. It's, the, it's the exact opposite of those kids. Oh man, look here, look, look down here, exclaimed the ghost. There were a boy and girl, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate, too, in their humility. Where graceful youth should have filled their features out, and touched them with its freshest tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of age had pinched and twisted them and pulled them into shreds. Where angels might have sat enthroned, devils lurked and glared out menacing. No change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade. Through all the mysteries of wonderful creation has monsters half so horrible and dread. Scrooge started back appalled, having them shown to him in this way he tried to say they were fine children but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude spirit are they yours scrooge could say no more they are man's said the spirit looking down upon them and they cling to me appealing from their fathers this boy is ignorance this girl is want beware them both but most of all beware this boy for on his brow I see that written which is doom unless the writing be erased. Deny it. So ignorance and want. He's forced to look at what is um, what he doesn't want to see. In the beginning of the story, Scrooge waxed mm. eloquent about um, what it is that's wrong with the people who don't have what he has. Well, they're just lazy bums, you know. They're um, and they belong in the prisons, and they belong in the poorhouse, and they, if they can't show any more initiative than that, and the Spirit makes him see that there are other causes to the destitution, uh, some that he may have uh, the ability to correct. So yeah. th- that's, that's yeah. an important lesson, I think, that the second Spirit teaches him, to see the poor. Yeah. So. He actually turns the whole situation on him. He repeats those words, oh, they're not poor houses. Um, because he actually confronts him, I think, a little bit earlier in the chapter, saying, listen, you describe the poor as the surplus population, but if what I'm showing you tonight is true, you are the thing that's worthy to be thrown out, if we're getting rid of people. (laughs) Yeah, he says, in fact, uh, belay that vacuous can't until you know what the surplus is. Mm, Yeah. Um, And that's what he shows him in the end, Yeah, what the surplus is. And then... Creeping upon the ground, a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, comes like a mist towards him. The ghost of Christmas future. So, interesting. Why why a silent, foreboding phantom? I mean, it, it may be that it goes without saying, which is why Charles Dickens didn't say it, but, right. but why? Why that about the future? Well, he starts off the, the book by describing um, people as fellow passengers to the grave. And so I think there was generally the presumption that the future was full of dread Hmm. for all of human beings. And I think you see this even in Paul's writings back in the New Testament, you know, when the, the issue that's being confronted is the question of death, 
right? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That's the whole beauty of the resurrection is that it conquers the problem of death, which in Western material culture, we try to just sort of shield that off and not think about it much. But I think for most of human history, that has been the thing. And so because death was in everybody's future, because Dickens, as Dickens says, we're all fellow passengers to the grave, then then there's foreboding and scary darkness associated with everyone's future. Yeah. And yeah. I think that sort of all piles in together in this story. And, and I think it's most surprising that for Scrooge, who had thought through the ac- accumulation of all his wealth that he had secured a brighter future. Yeah. Suddenly confronted with his own future, he found out it's as dark and silent and immovable as everyone else's. Your yeah. money hasn't bought you a, a particular kind of future. Yeah, and he's he's not bringing good news to, to Scrooge at all. And in fact, what I find interesting is that Dickens forced Scrooge to say all the things because throughout this, sort of the, the truth speaker, the truth teller has been the spirit. But here in, the, in the, the future one, which interesting enough is the only part of human experience we can't hear from, right? So no one knows what the future has for you. So it's always silent mm-hmm. to all of us. Mm-hmm. And so Scrooge has to speak the truth. He's forced to speak the truth over what he's seeing in his own future. And I think for, for Dickens, that's a smart, smart move. He has to repent of some things out loud. If we're honest, oh, sorry, go ahead, Van. I was just going to say when you know you get to the scene where he sees his own uh, headstone and he's asking, "Is this what will or what may be?" You know, he's begging for another chance to mm-hmm. make it right and <laughs> trying to convince me I'm not the same guy. You know, please tell me I may sponge yeah. away the writing yes, on this stone. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, and that's ex- that's exactly so. Just to summarize here, we're, we're we're running out of time to summarize that last chapter or that that uh, last ghost rather. He is basically forced to look upon his own death and the complete disregard of the entire world for him no emotion attached to this but relief and so right. there's this interesting scene where he's he says he begs the ghost show me some tenderness connected to death you know yeah. or i'll be haunted by this forever and so the ghost takes him to a scene where this young couple are quietly and sort of sheepishly rejoicing that scrooge is dead because it meant that they're their debt was lightened, their burden was lifted in some sense. Yeah. Um, and so that's the only tenderness connected to this man's death. And then he finds in the end that it was his, 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 it's his own gravestone that has been the source of all this. Mm. And there's something that can be said, I guess, about the future for each of us. And Dickens captures it powerfully here. It, it's formless. It's shapeless in a way. But our, yeah. it, but, 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 it, but our lives point in a direction. Mm-hmm. And so that's all the spirit ever does of the future. He points. He never speaks. He only points. Our lives here, our past and our present, do point in a direction for those who have eyes to see the direction their lives are pointing toward. And this is something that the ghost of Christmas future, I think, does for Scrooge. He opens his eyes to see where his life is headed. He didn't want to think this, but that's the truth of it. Yeah. I think it also makes us ask the question, you know. Thinking of our own lives, will people rejoice when we're gone? <laughs> will yeah. we be lightening somebody's load because we're not in the picture? Yes. Or will we uh, be more of a blessing to people in our lives? Yeah, even the thing that he thinks is his greatest source of security, there's a scene where a bunch of his servants have pilfered yeah. the goods of his house and taken it to a, uh, interestingly enough, 
a, a mirror of Scrooge in this pawn shop owner who's very miserly himself among the refuse of garbage that he has. And it just shows that all of the stuff that Scrooge has was garbage that someone else will take and sell to someone yeah. else. And one of the more uh, poignant scenes of gross, the Ghost of Christmas Future shows um, to Scrooge is the Cratchit family mourning the death, the recent passing of Tiny Tim. Um, there was an empty crutch by an, by an empty chair. Uh, a crutch without an owner by an empty chair, I think is the way it was described. Um, and, and so Scrooge is forced to see the grief that's brought upon the Cratchit household. And all of these things I think we see, these are the impact of Scrooge's inaction. Mm-hmm. N- not merely what he chose, but what he didn't choose. And so there's an old Anglican prayer. that uh, It's a prayer of repentance. Forgive us, Lord, for our most grievous sins, for what we have, you know, our sins. We have sinned against you in word and deed, in what we have done and in what we have left undone. And I think he's confronted with both, the consequences of what he has done and what he has left undone in the future. And one of those things is Tiny Tim's death. Yeah, it's like the scripture says, to him who knows the right to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. Yes. Yes. So the last chapter does he die? Does Scrooge die? Yes. <laughs> I mean, no. I, I suppose eventually, not, not that Christmas. So I, I know the story, but I read the book, and they kept saying that this was going to be three nights. Yes. And, of course, I'm sitting there. It's already Christmas Eve. I'm going, it's already Christmas Eve. It's going to be like two days after Christmas. What a silly, like, what a silly time to choose You really to goofed, this. Charles Dickens. You really goofed this. And then the, the moment of relief when Scrooge figures out it's still Christmas Day, I think that's one of the best plot devices he uses in the book because it gives us as the audience the relief to know there's time to fix this. We have an opportunity to do something about it. Oh, it's so What's good. funny is we should have seen this coming because it's already been demonstrated that God is the God of time. Of course. Past, present, and future. Yeah. And so we should have seen that this that oh, would have been possible. But it's well, so good. One of the first things he says when... He the the spirit leaves him. The last spirit leaves him, as he says, "I will live in the past, the present, and the future." Yes, mm. yes, mm. yeah. That's his. Mm-hmm. That's his pledge to yeah. live in the past, the present, the future. So he repents, and the first thing we see in the in the last stave of the book is Ebenezer Scrooge delighted, giddy. Um, over the fresh chance that he gets. It's rebirth, and there's bells ringing yep. out on Christmas Day. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Um, thoughts from thoughts on that last chapter? Yeah, I mean, he's he's kind of like, uh, he's making wrongs right. You know, the gentleman that walks into his shop early on in the story, he, get, he finds him on the street and... Uh, Zacchaeus-like. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, mm-hmm. uh, and just... Uh, does right by the guy and the guy can hardly believe it he's not even sure if he should <laughs> take scrooge at his word but i think the biggest kick i got or it was it talked about scrooge's laugh said so for a guy that hadn't been practicing this for a while i mean he gave a real hearty laugh you know <laughs> as he went well, about his business yeah the father of a long long line of laughs I yeah. Yeah. What, yeah yeah, yeah. It's a, he, he become he becomes the source of much laughter for the rest of his life he actually makes this comment really early on, early on um i don't know how long i've been among the spirits i don't know anything I'm quite a baby. Never mind. I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. Hello, whoop. Hello there. Yeah. And so it's this. It's back to this idea of childish joy, rebirth. Rebirth. He is a yeah. whole new person. Yeah. And the first thing he does about it is he just laughs his face off. I'm a baby. I'd rather be a baby. Yeah. 
no one comes to the Father unless you come to me like a child, Jesus says. Yeah. Unless you are born again, you can never yeah. enter the kingdom. Yeah, oh. and so and so he does this. And I love the line. I love this little paragraph. Um, this is captures, I think, the spirit of repentance. He says, the chuckle with which he said this, and the chuckle with which he paid for the turkey, and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab, and the chuckle with which he recompensed the boy were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair again and chuckled till he cried. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. yeah, It's great. He laughs with so much joy, but gratitude. It's gratitude that brings him to tears. And it says, actually, his own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. Mm-hmm. Now he had he could never get enough yeah. of of the money that he had devoted himself to yes. acquiring, right? Yeah. But at the end, his own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. So, I, I love this also. Just to kind of, it, I love the way Dickens captures all this. He says, um, "Shaving was not an easy task, for his hand continued to shake very much, and shaving requires attention." Even when you don't dance while you're at it. <laughs> this picture of Scrooge uh, with a straight razor dancing, you know, while he's shaving. You know, that's yeah. a dangerous business there. I like, I like the sense of humor that he's given as well when Cratchit comes in uh, back to the shop and Scrooge is acting like he's mad that he's late. And he's saying, it's just one day a year, you know, that I get to be with family and ultimately says, you know, acting like he's about to drop some punishment on him. But he says, well, in light of all this, I'm going to give you a raise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. Wouldn't we love to hear that? You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He like, tells him this, and Cratchit is stunned. I mean, he's honestly yeah. kind of scared because Scrooge jumps up and yeah. pokes him in the ribs real hard. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, thinks, <laughs> he thinks he's lost it, and so it says Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler, like he's going to crack him over the head. He had a momentary uh, idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him, and calling to the people in the court for help and a straight waistcoat. <laughs> and then, I love this, I love this. A Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge with an earnestness that could not be mistaken as he clapped him on the back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavor to assist your struggling family, and we will discru- discuss your affairs this very afternoon. Over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop, Bob, make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Hmm. And then... Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he became a second father. Oh, it's a good story. It's a great story. So, we've gone about as far as we can go in this story. How... How are you going to, I guess, uh, how now shall we live? (laughs) Um, Mm. You know, you encounter a story like this and you can't help but be Scrooge. You encounter the ghost of your own past and the ghost of your own present and the ghost of your own future as you read it. So what's your takeaway from the book? I've got to take... The words of uh, Master Fred as he's going to uh, as he's going to Scrooge. He's trying to make his plea for Christmas early on in the book. Scrooge's nephew, and he actually makes the comment that you really can't have the the trappings of Christmas without the uh, the the Savior of Christmas. He says, um, 
Christmas among the rest, I am sure I've always thought of Christmas time when it came when it come round, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belongs to it can be apart from that as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. Hmm. I think I'm going to take away this idea that Christmas is a peculiar time when we can honor our Savior by by giving generously um, out of what we've been given and not not holding back either our hearts or our means from other people, but just giving it away regardless of what effect we think it will have. Yeah, one of my takeaways would be um, embracing life with heartfelt laughter and joy, understanding it the way God intended for it to be living it out with the people in your life and all around you. Yeah, I think there's a longing. The thing that stood out to me in the story, I think, was the longing that Dickens tapped into in his readers. There's a longing in everyone's heart, I think, for the kind of warmth and light and joy that you got glimpses of throughout the story, but I think what we learn in Scrooge is that we need to be the source of that in other people's lives. Yep. Mm-hmm. We need to bring the light and the joy, and this is kind of everything that Kyle and Van said. We need to bring the light and the joy and be the source of that mirth, mm. and, uh, and the only way we can do that is by properly valuing the things that God had placed, has placed into the world in the right priorities. Mm. We need to le- put his price tags on things in terms of their value and value the people and value the, the laughter and value the generosity and value the power to bless that may attend money but not the hoarding of it. Um, it's, it's for blessing uh, if it's put into our hands, it's there to be a blessing uh, in the lives of people around us. Yeah. yeah, you, you, Dad, read a quote from Marley. Marley's the first ghost that we see. He's visited by four ghosts, I guess, in the final analysis. Um, and Marley says that bit about what his business really was. And he has this, you know, you can tell it's been heavy on his heart all those years he's been walking in silence, you know, seven years wandering the world, chained um, to all this baggage. And he says, you know, that line about the things I concerned myself with every day that I worried about were but a drop in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Hmm. I think for me to, you know, I I walk away from this story every time struck by how narrow-minded I become on my own. And the idea of living in the past, the present, and the future, and how that might open your eyes to the totality of your business around you every day is just a, it's an, it's an excellent thought. It's a great exhortation and something that I, I come away from this book every time with, that my business is so much more than just 
the, the minutia that I worry about hmm. um, on a daily basis. And so I think on behalf of all of us here, we heartily recommend to you, the reader, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And in Dickens' own words, may it haunt your houses pleasantly and no one wish to live.